Hey everybody, Ray Lucchese here with Howard Marks here. Welcome to the next episode of Greybeards on Storage Podcast, a show where we get Greybeard storage bloggers to talk with system vendors and technologists to discuss upcoming products, technologies, and trends affecting the data center today. This Greybeard on Storage episode was recorded on January 23rd, 2019. We have with us here today Frederick Van Heron, CTO of HiFence. Frederick's an old friend who's been on our show before and is focused on AI consulting and services. So, Frederick, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you've been up to? Sure. As you mentioned, my name is Frederick Van Heren. I, um, in a previous life, I used to build large HPC clusters for speech recognition. I did that for more than a decade and wanted to do something else. So I thought it was a grandiose idea to become a consultant. Um, think about HPC, big data, AI. That's typically the areas I play in. So what have I been doing? Well, mostly I've been doing um, a lot of NDA work for storage vendors, um, being startups as well as established vendors. And so the technologies there were typically NVMe or objects. You know, those are the kind of the two um, technologies that, that storage vendors really were looking for. Well, yeah, it's what, what's happening at the extremes because we figured the middle out. <laughs> yeah, apparently. <laughs> okay, so disk is not a discussion point. Okay. Okay. So as well as as helping vendors and and customers with AI projects, right, going from early stages to complete transformation projects. Um, but also, I've been doing some analyst work, really, to get some additional name recognition because you can't get enough of that, right? Why? Why do you think we're here? So we've been hearing for the past year or eighteen months a lot from storage vendors about AI and ML applications, and over and over, we I get press releases. And would you like to speak with us about this NVIDIA thing that we've combined with our storage? But Ray and I are old, and so we understand OLTP as a workload, and we understand VMs as a workload. How is AI? How does AI deal with the storage? How do we keep people running running the applications you want to run happy? Yeah, it's not not it's a it's a question, unfortunately, with a very long answer because AI is is really well. We got about an hour. <laughs> <laughs> So, so if you if you purely look at the definition of AI, or at least most of the implementations today, is is really using human reasoning and create a model to predict the future outcome driven by past events. And what are past events? Past events really means data. So you're going to use data and process data as fast as you can in order to get results. That is really AI from a high level. If you you know, if you, since we have an hour, I can describe a little bit, you know, the, the history of AI. So AI is, is, is a term that almost has been around as long as HPC, right? And in the meantime, AI today means something completely different than it meant in the, in the 50s and the 80s. So in short, let's call traditional AI whatever happened between 1950 and, and 1980. And, and so what, what happened in those days is... Is they had a, if they had a problem to solve, let's take um, uh, the game of chess as an example, right? So in order to come up with a model or an application that could play chess against a human, they had to extract all the rules and, and all the knowledge and, and how, how to play offense and how to play defense and how to recognize patterns. All of that information, they had to get it from somewhere. So in those days, they had to extract that information out of a Gary Kasparov and another grandmaster and come up with rules. And that those rules would be would be coded into an application. Mind you, 
I wrote a checkers program in, in college, uh, and I got the I got the award for the most computer time used in one semester ever. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> sure. I'm not sure it's been uh, revoked since then. But again, they went for a more client server solution. But at the time, it was mainframe systems, and I just I just flew through it. It was fun, but it's crazy. Yeah, I mean, it's so if you think about it, it was all about you know taking rules, taking whatever a grandmaster knew, translate that into code, and then you had a model. The, the problem was that if you, if you wanted to model to, to learn, you actually had to pro- programmatically implement that all over again. And as you know, that's kind of a, a, a slow process and takes a lot of time and, and interaction from, from a programmer. So if you let's move a little bit forward. So if you look at machine learning, so machine learning is considered a subset of AI or the traditional AI, if you wish. And now we're kind of in the 1980s, 2010. And so the way you can think about that is is Hadoop and Spark, those kind of technologies where the open source community kind of kicked in and said, look, you, you know, if you want to process things, you don't have to buy those large, expensive uh, infrastructure. You can use open source things like Linux, Spark, Hadoop, um, and then from a hardware perspective, you also had the benefit that there were, you know, laws, more slow, right? Everything was more going going faster and faster, as well as the fact that hardware was becoming cheaper. Yeah, and storage was becoming cheaper as well. Yeah, and so so if we apply this again to the chess game, right? So the way you can look at it is is that ML applied to chess is where you still implement the rules of the chess game into into your ML uh, system, you know, te- from a technology standpoint, we'd call that the features. That's kind of the, the, right, the right word to use. And then you would use some data uh, from a bunch of uh, chess games that, that have been played. So the combination of those features slash the rules together with the data, you were able to build a model that could learn from... Um, from itself, right? So every time you use the model, people played against it. That would be new data. That new data then can be put in the in the picture again. You create an updated model, and and there you are. You have something that works. So if I get this right, in the old days, we would create rules that were you should move your knight this way, and today we say these are the rules of chess. A knight is allowed to move in these ways and watch these 6 million games and figure out how you should move it. That's right. That's right. And, and because in those days, you know, one of the things was that there was a problem for ML was a lack of what we call good quality data, right? It was a not, there was no lack of data, but a lack of good quality data, meaning um, very good chess games, Yes, well verified without errors and all that stuff. Because once you start heavily relying on data and you use data as a way to make decisions, you know, bad data or or bad quality data kind of means that your 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 output also will be affected by then. So I can't enter the chess games between the nine year olds who'll cheat when the other guy turns his back. That's right. Or the cheating will end up in the model, right? And yeah, then, yeah, yeah, yeah. I suppose that could be good and bad, but yeah, okay. I right. So, so that's that's machine learning. So, machine learning is really taking advantage of of the data you have. So, and then we enter kind of the 2010 area, and now 
which is deep learning. So what's so specific about deep learning? Well, imagine that if you have enough data that represents a significant amount of, of chess games, instead of having the features slash the rules being, being dictated to you, you can just start with data and let the data figure out how the game is played. Yeah, I'd say let the model figure out how the game is played based on the, the data, right? That's right. And since, and since I never saw a knight move one square forward, he can't. Yes. So, and because of that, you enter a different level of complexity, right? So now that you need a lot of data, you also have to find a way to, to analyze that enormous amount of data um, in, a, in, a, in a timely fashion. So, and again, the open source community came to the rescue where they started delivering uh, open source frameworks that would do all the anal analytical pieces for you, right? So the, the frameworks that are exist today are Cafe and TensorFlow and PyTorch and Keras. You probably have heard those names flying around. What those are, those are frameworks that is not data, but those are the frameworks that allow you to process that data. Now, those frameworks also realize that um, they should take advantage of the new processing capabilities that exist today. And the processing capabilities are, you know, the, the, the number one used today really is, is, is GPUs, right? So instead of using a CPU, they decided to use GPUs. Um, Google came up with Tensor, which is their, their hardware implementation. The software for that is TensorFlow. Yeah, and then FPGAs and ASICs, you know, it's it's kind of, you know, flashback for me to DSPs and, and, and like. But in reality, the way you can look at that is that this is hardware that allows you to do fast mathematical uh, calculations. And each one of those is, is taking shortcuts, mathematical shortcuts, you know, without really... Um, impacting the results so much seemed like the seemed like the tpus had very limited uh precision i think was a was a key there i mean rather than like 32 bits or 16 bits or 64 or whatever it was almost on the order of 8 or 16 bits yeah so the the goal of tensor was to do uh matrix op operation a four by four matrix two two uh, two four by fours um, but each of the elements or the numbers are uh, floating point 16, but the outcome is a 32-bit floating point, right? So the message there is, is not to do 32-bit um, floating point bit calculations out of the gate, but to use 16-bit 16, 16 floating points and end up with 32-bit to do it faster. Yeah, it's all about cutting corners without impacting the, uh, the outcome, right? Yeah. And so, and so that's really what's happening. And if you look at look at um, a physical piece of hardware, if you take a one U server with two sockets, it might have like forty CPU cores. If you take um, a four U server with eight GPU cards in it, you know that four U server can have forty thousand GPU cores, right? So yeah, so. Right, so much much greater parallelism for the simple thing that we're That's doing. That's right. So taking advantage of parallelism. So it's but it it comes it also comes with a with a whole different bag of of problems, right? So, and so when you when you put everything together, you end up with an an AI infrastructure where 
you have to deal with uh, storage, you have to deal with processing capabilities, you know, GPUs, TPUs, FPGAs, and then also the interconnect, right? If you have fast storage and you have fast uh, GPUs, you need some network, not only that does the fast processing, but also keeps the latency low, right? So imagine that all those GPU cards have to talk to each other, you know, kind of MPI-alike workload, and in order to get, um, you know, to keep those things going real-time, you need to have the lowest latency you can have, right? So for DL, you need all in innovation in all those areas. But I must say that that the open source community with the frameworks is kind of putting everything upside down, right? So if we look at the traditional AI, every, everything was about the code and the rules, meaning that you know your your source code was the IP, while today your the open source community is delivering the tools. So you that's not your IP. Your data is the IP. Yeah. It's all about the data. Yeah. Okay. So would it be, I mean, to oversimplify, it's this GPU, TPU, FPGA compute core is so fast and so expensive. We want to build the rest of the system around it to make sure that it's constantly fed. So, so I got two, two questions here. So there's, there's a, there's, I'll call it a training phase. And there's an operational phase of, of any AI, and it's probably some other phases. I don't know. But during the training phase, you're taking this data and you're passing it into this framework model configuration and, and using it to, to uh, you know, build the, the model uh, intelligence, I'll call it. I, I'm not exactly certain what I'd call it. But that, and there's, so that's, that's happening during training. And then, but once you deploy the model, let's say it's a, I don't know, self-driving car or something like that. So the, so the model is sitting there um, probably in the car, I guess, because it needs to have real-time control. It's taking as input from data from the sensors, LIDARs, cameras, sound, you know, movement, you know, what, you know, also the vehicle speed and direction and those sorts of stuff. And then it's somehow taking all that information and saying, okay, this is where you want to go in this situation. At this moment, and then the next moment, another set of data comes in, etc. Is that how this sort of thing works? Yes. So, so indeed. So, AI really consists of two pieces. One is is building the model, right? So, you, you have to you have to have a base model in order to do anything. And and as you mentioned, you know, it's called training, right? So, you let's assume a typical example is if you have. Um, you know, ten thousand pictures of something, and you wanna you wanna use that for AI to recognize if there is a cat or a dog in the picture. Then, um, you, what you would do is you would take eighty um, percent of your 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 pictures, and you would use them to create a model. And so that's the training phase, and the the outcome of the training phase is is a model, and that model is something you can use in production. You know, the the actual term that people typically use is inference. Inference is the process where you you deploy your model and you 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 validate it against new input, which is you know people using the system, right? So in the car, um, you know you get that feed, and then there's a feedback loop. So once the model has has um, predicted, yeah, has predicted, you know whatever whatever came in, there is there is a uh, a feedback loop where you send that data back added to your training and you can update your model and it's kind of an 
an, an, an infinite loop, right? So as long as you use the system, you can use that data to improve, improve your, the model. Is that, is that, uh, is that loop process is almost like a batch, you know, yet another training phase with all the data that you had before, plus any new data you have verified and vetted and all that stuff. And you go through and do a training pass again, or is it, is there, is it real time? You're feeding that new data into the model, and it's it's adjusting itself. However, yeah, it depends on the application. Training typically is batch, and and inference is typically real time. But you know, give you an example: if Waze, you know, Waze the 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 app that most people now use to navigate, that is obviously real time because you if there's an accident somewhere. You don't want to know about it within an hour. In an hour, you want to know it now, right? So there's there is a, a little bit of a real time aspect, and you can, you know, there there are ways to deal with that. But then there are other way, other products where, uh, let's say, if you use a speech recognition application for a bank, where the the updating the model is not something that has to happen right away, right? So you might have an SLA, and the SLA might say. You, I expect four-hour turnaround for new models, right? And then the users uses the system, and then it goes along. But in general, training is batch, and inference is is really real time. So you could have like a four-hour model update frequency. I mean, this, I always thought you know the DevOps guys doing new code every day is pretty bizarre, but changing the model every four hours is is a is a reasonable thing. Yes, it's reasonable in the sense, well, if the application and your service allows it, but it, it's all automated, right? There's no human interaction, right? It, it's, it's, it's the choice there is what kind of service do you deliver? How fast do you need it? Um, and, 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 and how do you handle it, right? But it's all automated. It's just, it's just GPU or CPU time. Uh, and typically people have, uh, a training cluster on one side, and then they use on the side like this closed loop or adaptation, if you wish. You know, the, the term to to change your model is typically referred to as adaptation, where you adapt the model, right, and and to kind of personalize it to you, um, because that's really what you want, right? It's it's if what if you build an application. Um, for a service, let's say, you know, Amazon, not that I worked on Amazon, but I presume that Amazon, when you log in for the first time in Amazon, has no idea what you want, but they give you a basic line of products on the on the on their on the front page. And then as you use the system and you Yeah, the recommendations will adjust just for you, right? And 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 how fast and and soon enough you'll be like everybody else and as soon as you buy something you'll go to facebook and see ads for the thing yeah. you just bought. yeah there, there's some articles where where amazon is thinking of shipping stuff to you before you actually decided to purchase them oh that would be interesting let's not go there <laughs> so, uh, you know i as a geek i got a couple of nuts and bolts questions so the, when you talk about the model, that's a data structure of some sort, right? It's a combination of data and, and code. Yeah. Right, so it's, so I look at this as a, as a neural, it's like a neural net with weights that have been, you know, finally adjusted to support whatever you're trying to predict, I think. That's right. right so, so training is both updating the data structure and essentially self-modifying code. It's code generation, 
I would call it code generation. I would say the training is more like, you know, you go through the process of, of uh, updating those weights based on some model architecture, I'll call it. And then there's a process where the model architecture is actually tweaked based upon its accuracy and those sorts of things. But that's done, that seems like it's done more more like once the model you know, tweaking and architecture tweaking and then, but the, the learning can happen multiple, multiple times or training rather, or adaption, I should say. Yeah, I mean, so so the, the way it works, I mean, Ray's kind of, kind of, you know, went the technical route here, but it, it, it's when you look at neural networking, it's indeed about weights, right? So you have different kinds of inputs and then you have to decide how much weight you're going to put on on a particular um, input, right? So, um, and 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 changing those weights is is what the neural network will do. And by changing the weights, the the, the accuracy um, will change. And and but every time you add new data, you know you have to redo those weights. Uh, a model is where you figured out. Or you think you figured out the weights, and you kind of use those weights um, statically until you kind of adapt your model, and then you update the weights to what what you just learned, right? But it's but it's it's really a lot of math, a lot of weights. Um, everything can change, um, and it can change automatically. Okay, so I get that part, but we're we're still stuck on. I'm still stuck on. And how do these frameworks talk to storage? Because I mean, I know, you know, media and entertainment people talk to files or objects and databases want to do small block IOs. What what are these applications doing? Yeah. So so let's let's talk a little bit about, you know, um, workloads and, and, and how how the data kind of flows through a system, because it's it's kind of different from from what you traditionally would would have done in the past. Um so the first thing you have to deal with is is different types of storage because um, at first you need to take care of ingesting your data, right? So before you can do any training, you have to ingest that data. So where are you going to store that data and where is that data coming from, right? And, and as Ray already mentioned, it could be... Um, from, you could collect all your data centralized, or it could come from IoT devices. But the bottom line is, is you have to deal with data ingestion. So any storage storage requirements for that is heavily right. Uh, so you're going to ingest a lot of data. So there, the focus is a lot of writing. After you ingested the data, you have to prepare your data. So we talked a little bit about data quality before and some pre-processing, and that's a storage device or storage architecture where there's a lot of read-write going on, um, followed by the actual training. So the model training, as you can suspect, is heavily read-write. Um, and then moving away from training and going to inference, it's a lot of, of reading. So if you look at what kind of storage do I use, do I use block, do I use file, and do I use object? In reality, all of the above could actually work. It really? depends on yeah. It depends on where you are in your cycle. Yeah, but it, but the all of the above model would be ingest here, copy it there, run the next step, push it to the third place to do the 
inference. Yes, and, and it's not a storage device, right? It's typically a solution that consists, or an architecture that consists of different types of storage, and your data moves through various stages through that as you as you're processing it or, or uh, preparing it or or engineering it i guess i call it yeah 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 so in the in the early days you know think about traditional ai and and a little bit machine learning what people would do is they would create um, file systems with different data profiles and based on the data profiles, they would go, this is for data ingest, this is for data preparation, and this is for training. And because training is, is, is processing a lot of data in a, in, a, in, a, in a timely fashion, you can expect that anything that hits or gets close to a CPU or GPU, that's where you expect storage device that is high high performance low and latency. very low latency yeah. yeah so i mean a lot of the, a lot of the stuff i've toyed with mind you i'm only toying with machine learning yeah usually it just reads in the data and converts it to a to a i'll call it a, a, an in-memory data structure and that works for small files and stuff like that but for some of these massive data sets that they're feeding into these machine learning things i mean that doesn't work right i mean you actually have to do reads and and, and writes actually directly to the uh to some storage files or something, I guess, right? Yes, that's right. And so there, there, there are many, many ways to do it. So the, the traditional way of just putting a SAN out there and just hitting the SAN doesn't work anymore. So what you need to do is, you know, you have to deal with data gravity and, and data locality. And so the decision then is, is, is hopefully, uh, ideally, you would bring your data as close as to your, to your CPU or your GPUs, which would mean in that box in that final form that you needed to be in and stuff like that. Yeah, in, yeah. In the final form, yes. The training phase. And 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 it goes all over the place, right? So so direct you know you have seen I've seen direct attached. I've seen people loading up um, with flash drives. I've seen other people use uh, NVMe drives, particularly for the extreme low latency. Uh, I've seen people create um, uh, high performance file systems across um, those servers with GPUs and GPUs so that they can kind of on-off um, data locality, you know, kind of creating a data locality. Almost a cache for the, for the data from the file system kind of thing. Yeah, it, it has to be tiered, right? So because imagine, imagine that you're sitting on 50 petabytes of data. 50 petabytes, okay. <laughs> 50 petabytes, yeah. I mean, it, there's a lot of people that have 50 petabytes today. I think Howard's gotten his back uh, back of his lab, don't you, Howard? Not not quite, but you know, <laughs> close. But I but I do remember not all that long ago hearing vendors go, and we have three customers each with a petabyte. Yeah, that's beyond that now, Howard. Okay, I got. You. Go ahead, Fred. I'm Frederick. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, no problem. I mean, if you if you have fifty petabytes and you know that for the next three days you're going to you're going to process half a petabyte of that storage it doesn't make any sense to put the 50 petabytes all on high availability storage right that's very expensive so you come up with a tier and you kind of you know you talked about a cache you know slash tier 0 model where you you move your data um, as close as possible and then you probably have a second tier maybe flash or 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 um, at least maybe still sas who knows that gives you the ability to move that data in and out really quickly. And then you have a large pool of data 
where you you where the data is kind of at rest, but you're waiting for some kind of an orchestrator that moves that data up and down, right? And you can see that with storage vendors. You know, we talk about AI, using AI with storage solutions, but the storage vendors themselves are also building AI in their storage devices because they realize that there is a need for such a thing. So they're also trying to help you out by, you know, pre-caching, pre-fetching, their their caching algorithms are getting more and more sophisticated. Yeah, we're we're still we're still waiting for the day when uh, the storage array recognizes that it's the thirtieth of the month and the and month end close starts tomorrow. So I better promote all that data today. I think they're out there, Howard. <laughs> well, it's it's it. I mean, they don't do it today because the amount of data they need to manage that long, you know, a year long time horizon, and no. This thing that happens once a month is about to repeat. They haven't quite made it to that yet, but it, but I see it coming. But if you look at at you know, if you purely look at storage, um, it, it's very complex because I think Howard, you said it earlier, right? So one of the one of the the the, the, the most expensive components nowadays uh, for around machine learn the, the deep learning is those GPUs. Those GPUs are not cheap, right? So if you have a whole army of those. You know, you have to make sure that your GPUs, all those forty thousand cores per four U server, um, yeah, I, um, I paid a lot for them. I'm going to keep them busy. I, I use crypto mining actually keep mine busy. That's why they're so expensive. It's all your fault, Ray. Probably, and and others like me. Yes, they are. I, actually, I think they've fallen since the uh, the Bitcoin crash, but that's a different story. Okay, so as as you were describing that whole thing. I was seeing a workflow that's got multiple copies of data and thinking, wow, I really want to throw NVMe over fabrics at this. I can replace some of those copies of move the data of move the data from the training cluster to the inference cluster with mount the NVMe namespace and not actually move the data. I don't know if I inject here, but it seems like the data that you're using during inferencing slash deployment of the model and the data that you're using during the training phase might be two different sets of data. I don't know. Frederick, you want to comment on that? Yes, yes, they are, definitely. I mean, let's assume let's assume the 50, 50, 50 petabyte example is you use that for training, but when you deliver your model, your model is a fraction of that, right? And because you you kind of you use the neural networking to deduct um, a model and the weight based on the, based on the sensor information coming in and data coming in as as during almost real time, right? Kind of things, right? Yes, I mean, really, what you're doing when when there is when a user is using the model is 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 statistically comparing what they're saying. Um, or what they're doing with the model you have, and that that has to be small. You 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 don't need a large uh, computer environment to do uh, inference. I mean, that would defeat the purpose. But you also have to, I don't know, archive the data as it's coming off, and the and the classification slash prediction or whatever the inference actually did. That all has to be archived someplace. So you are you are you know I don't know capturing the data. Yeah. Well, so some some. Some jamoke walks into the casino, you take his picture, you run it, you'd save it in the database for training in the next training cycle. You send it to the inference engine to see if he's allowed to gamble in your casino or not. 
the only result out of the inference is the guy's a the guy's a wise guy. Throw him out. Yeah, you're an A. Yeah. And so you record the you record the inference. You record the the, the image. And then once a week, I f- plug the new in, new images. Every four hours, <laughs> you're saying, you know. I'm in the casino business. I don't have that strict an SLA. Major banks, maybe. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, that's a story. So yeah, you're getting all you're getting. I don't know what you call it, real time sensor information in. The model's making some inference out, and that data has to be recorded so you can run the adaption cycle again. So a lot of that data was that I'm keeping that has been used to train the model won't get used frequently because every four hours or every day I'm going to feed the new data in and refine the model, and I'm only going to go back to all the other data. Yeah, it's 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 data. It's 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 the data with the um, the uh, the results, right? So um, if you let's say that you're doing um, uh, again the example I used before, image recognition of of cats and dogs, right? So you have a model that recognizes cats and dogs. You somebody feeds it a picture which shows a cat, and um, the system says, "Hey, it's a dog." And the user says, not really. And so you feed that that the data back as well as the 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 metadata about the uh, the inference, which is, hey, this 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 was was not recognized as a cat. Right. So again, to oversimplify, I've got a JPEG, and it's got metadata that says it's a dog. And we sent the JPEG through, and the system said it's a cat. When I retrain, I add metadata that says you thought this was a cat last time. Yes. So the, the, the adaption cycle is – so here's the question, Frederick. Does the adaption cycle just go and process the new data and new inferencing and the new metadata, or does it go through the whole complete pass across the training data plus the new information? Typically, it's, it just takes the base model and modifies, modifies the base model. Okay. So a training – instance with the with the new data yes i mean remember that that when you when you deploy an application for the first time you have a base model that works for everybody what you want to do is to customize it just for you right and so whatever you do with the system we the system will adapt that model specifically for you if there's and and so you're not rerunning the whole thing you just changing the weights, you know, if we're talking technically here, you're just changing the weights such that it will be more in favor on what you said. Um, and then depending on on if the system believes that this is also applicable to other people, it might go back to the bigger pool. And then next time when they use the bigger pool to rerun larger models, they have that new data. But it's not like, you know, in the 50 petabyte example, it's not like uh, every four hour they process 50 petabytes, right? That they process. I was thinking that would be quite an interesting scenario. it will be a lot of bandwidth. Okay. I, I, now I see what you're saying. Yeah, but 30 of those 50 petabytes are essentially cold data relative. So storage-wise, you know, having something that provides uh, – both economical, large amounts of storage as well, low latency, high performance storage, and and tiering between those two, either automatically or programmatically, those are the sorts of things you'd think would be useful for the at least the training side of this coin. Is that what you would you agree with that? 
Yes, training is is where all the data is, and that's where data management and 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 where you deal with data volume, right? It's uh, inference is is uh, is a scalability perspective from from a unit, right? So you have one unit to do inference with a model, and then you have you know let's say a thousand instances if you want to have a thousand people using your system at the same time, right? Um, yeah, but it, but you know, going back to the storage and 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 how to use it with AI, um, and I think I mentioned before that um, you know, if you GPUs are very expensive, and um, in order to take full advantage of those GPUs, you have to make sure that you feed those GPUs with enough data and keep them fed up, fed with data and. It's it's really really difficult to do, and so what you will see is that a lot of um, storage vendors will come up with a solution that includes um, the three infrastructure components and then one or more frameworks. For example, um, you will see um, most vendors provide a solution that includes Mellanox for the interconnects. Um, use um, the DGX1 from NVIDIA. So DGX1 is a box uh, with a bunch of GPUs that is fully optimized. And, you know, I wouldn't say it's plug and play, but at least it eliminates uh, the fact that a lot of people need to learn a lot about GPUs and, and in order to get it to work. And then the storage vendor will plug in their storage device, right? So, um, you know, there's this, this, there's many vendors who come up with with this architecture, and then on top of that, they will deliver um, one or more platforms like uh, oh, frameworks, I should say, like uh, Keras or PyTorch or anything like that, such that they can deliver this as a solution to the customer, and the customer will know that um, that the ratio and the performance and the latency between the Mellanox, the DGX one. And their storage uh, solution is 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 as optimal as possible to start with because getting those things to to work together is 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 not an not an easy feat. And the, and the the DGX has storage as well. I mean NVMe direct access storage or um, it's 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 a little bit of caching. It's it's its goal is to provide um, enough flexibility so it 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 can boot. It 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 delivers um, uh, fast communication in between the GPU cards. You know, there's a technology from NVIDIA called NVLink. You know, as you can suspect, those cards are typically they go through the PCI bus. But if you want to to have GPU cards communicate uh, over the PCI bus, that eventually that's going to become a bottleneck. So what NVIDIA decided to do is to come up with a with a protocol where the GPU cards amongst themselves can talk at a higher speed, um, such that they don't they don't uh, take over the the PCI bus. Uh, and it does come with some some storage, some 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 RAM. Uh, it comes with with networking as well. Um, but it it doesn't have enough storage uh, to do a uh, large amount of training, right? And 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 I have to specify that the solutions that are being presented today are almost all aimed at training, because that's 
where the, the, the heavy duty is working, right? So you would not use something for this, like this for inference, unless you have a model that is also heavy uh, and requires a lot of GPU processing. You will see today that a lot of the um, uh, AI applications do their training with GPUs or TPUs, but in production, they might use CPUs. That's interesting. Okay, I got it. Well, gosh, guys, this has been great. Um, Howard, any last questions for Frederick? I, well, actually, just one. So these, I mean, I saw, we've seen these uh, machine learning stacks from Pure and from NetApp are, that I remember. IBM's got one. I'm sure EMC's probably got one by this time. It, it's starting to it's starting to sound like converged infrastructure for ML, which just makes sense. Yes, and that's exactly it. I mean, the solution I just the solution I described with Mellanox and Nvidia DGX one is is it's exactly that, right? Uh, I think it's it's a little bit of if converged, but also kind of a starter kit, right? Because people don't know how to start and 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 selling those three components separately, you know, storage, compute, and and network um, is very very difficult. So the converged approach is a is an economical kind of starter kit and just then they like can people didn't know how to build a data center for vmware so vce sold them a vblock so my question would be you know and, and as i look more and more at this ai stuff it seems its applicability is so wide I, it's, it's almost as if you know just about any corporate entity and any organization of any size whatsoever could seem like they could take advantage of this sort of thing. And, you know, and I'm, you know, I, uh, okay, so here I am, a one-person organization. I was able to to do some modeling with, you know, blog pro popularity prediction and stuff like that. And I didn't get perfect accuracy with, but I only have, you know, less than a thousand posts and stuff like that. But even at this point, I can use it and, and actually take advantage of some of it. Yeah, I think you said could take advantage. I would, I should replace could with should. I mean, in, in the world we live in now, it's a competitive advantage. Ignoring and, and ignoring AI today is just waiting for one of your competitors to figure out based on, on their data. How better to serve their customers. Yeah, yeah. Has, has been for a long time. I, I remember doing the first data warehouse projects at the casinos. It's like, wait, two weeks from Wednesday, we'd have extra hotel rooms who gambles two weeks from wednesday yeah find those guys and see if you can't rattle their cage and get them to come oh you call them and offer them a free room yeah. and a lobster dinner yeah yeah i understand literally <laughs> and that was that was ai decades ago <laughs> effectively oh, well it, it was it wasn't ai because we had to we had to know what we were looking for and then look in the data warehouse the ai part would be figuring it out ahead of time. Yeah, automatically. All right. Um, I don't know if I saw Frederick, anything you'd like to say to our listening audience? I, I think everybody should try out AI. It doesn't take a lot to, to try AI. I mean, even in the public cloud, it's easy to try it out. Um, I think I think if you have data or you, you think you can take advantage of AI, you know, just try it out. Don't be don't be scared. Nowadays, it's relatively easy to get to get things going. You know, you don't need a PhD anymore to to do some some AI. I did it on my laptop. That's crazy. 
Well, okay. Gents, this has been great. Thank you very much, Frederick, for being on our show today. Well, thanks for having me. And Frederick, you're, you're available for people with deep pockets who need help with this, right? Always. Please please tell them where. Yeah. So my website is uh, highfence.com. So uh, next time we'll talk to another system storage technology person. Any questions you want us to ask, please let us know. And if you enjoy our podcast, tell your friends about it. And please review us on iTunes and Google Play as this will help us get the word out. That's it for now. Bye, Howard. Bye, Ray. And bye, Frederick. Bye-bye. Until next time. Bye-bye.